0: Suncast is brought to you by Sungrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar.
1: I'm a crusader, I guess, is, is the simple way of putting it. I, I see problems, I see issues, and I try to solve them.
0: Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Warrior, and thank you. I'm so honored that you're setting aside this time to be with us here today. And I'm eager to introduce you to my friend, Carla Love of Segura Solar. Carla is a changemaker and pace setter who has spent the last 13 years not only developing solar and wind projects, but also defending your right to do so, and millions of others as well. Today's conversation covers a wide range of topics, from Carla's early days in Texas wind to her latest struggles and triumphs, bringing landmark legislation to bear in New York and the Mid-Atlantic markets. Carla has proven a fierce advocate and driving force for her employers and now as a SIA board member. I trust you'll want to stick around to hear how this brilliant lady from the Bayou made her way up to the highest levels of impact in multiple industries and how she's helping your solar company do the same. If you do love this episode, I sure hope you'll check out more than 250 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com and hey why don't you go ahead and sign up for our suncast tribe so you don't miss out when new episodes or summits live events and more are announced and in case you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast go ahead and do that in whatever app it is that you prefer spotify google podcast apple podcast take your pick You'll be able to get notified on Tuesday if you do that, because Carla's Tactical Tuesday episode is going to drop, taking a deep dive look into the Virginia Clean Economy Act. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today is a really fun interview conversation with my friend Carla Loeb. If you're unfamiliar with Carla, then I would wager that you haven't been paying attention to things happening in SIA or in Virginia, or generally you're not as connected as she is, but she's one of the most connected people I've met in the industry, Uh, a, a true dynamo, someone who has pulled herself up through the ranks in the solar industry, and I'm excited about this conversation. Carla's a veteran of clean energy policy and business development having specialized throughout her tenure in greenfield projects, new market entry, regulatory, and of course, legislative affairs. Now as the chief policy and development officer for Segura Solar, Carla is in charge of seeing how legislation and the administrative and regulatory efforts of uh, the local company that is Segura makes its way into uh, the state and national levels of policy as well as helping coordinate strategic development partnerships. I could go on and on. Uh, she is also a, a board member for SIA. For those of you in the solar industry, recognize that's the Solar Energy Industries Association. She leads the largest subcategory, I think is what maybe they call it, uh, distributed generation for SIA. Uh, she's an all-around kick-ass friend and uh, clean energy advocate. And I'm stoked to have you finally on Suncast. Carla, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. And finally, I think being the operative word, <laughs> we've been trying to, even in pandemic, it's been difficult to connect. So thanks so much for having us or having me on. And
0: Well, you've gotten to see how the sausage is made. Uh, Carla is referring to not only the three meetings that we've had. I, you know what's funny? We'll share this. I remember that your original interview was going to be on March 19th. It's now two months later. I was sitting in a truck. I was sitting in my truck here in Mexico uh, at one of the local uh, I don't know, one of the local offices, uh, because we knew that the next day, the, the state of Quintana Roo where I live, is, is clo- was going to close down and had to punt on that interview. And we've tried a couple of times to do this interview and Corona pandemic has prevented it. Not a- also, somehow, the actual attempt that we made of recording got lost in, uh, in the interwebs. So whatever you guys are, uh, are doing right now, sit it down, because I can promise you what we're about to drop is... Going to be good because we've been preparing for two months. Well, Carla, you have a fantastic story uh, and you, you've you served uh, a lot of different sort of roles and interests in the industry. But I always like to start out with a simple question. Help us understand how you were first exposed to the idea that clean energy or, or solar power uh, was a thing and, and how you decided that this is where you wanted to turn the focus of your career.
1: It found me i mean is the short answer i believe in the universe you know sometimes having a, a a more and better plan for for each of us and in my case i think that was certainly the case um i got a call i was actually living in in france at the time sounds really glamorous but let's just be clear i was living without hot water in paris so yes it was paris but no, there was no hot water, and yes, the water was cold. Um, and uh, an old friend called me and said, "Hey, do you want to come and work for me and be develop wind farms?" and And I said, "I don't know anything about wind energy." And her response was, "That doesn't really matter. People like you. You've never met a stranger, and you know everyone learns on the job anyway. And you're a smart person, so you'll figure it out." And so that was the beginning. I always just kind of assumed that I'd be a lawyer, that I would go to law school and, and practice law. Uh, was not really interested in doing corporate law. Always kind of gravitated to to constitutional law and rights of people and justice and all of these very kind of broad, um, very powerful words. And so the idea that I have ended up in clean energy, being an advocate for an industry, really kind of. It was an alignment I could have never hoped or dreamed for. I'm from Louisiana. I lived in Texas for sixteen years. You know, I'm I'm from the the deep depth darkness of of oil and gas patches and, and all of it. So so that's kind of the quick and dirty.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And you got your start, to be sure, in business development and wind development. But I, having had now many conversations with you about this, understand that, um, that the idea of legislation as power to, to sort of change the lives and the ways that things operate has been something that has always captivated you. How or when did policy really become a lever or become something that you were aware of as a tool to move large societies?
1: I mean, honestly, I as a a small child. I mean, I was a a history nerd. I loved policy. I loved civics. Majored in government and policy, and always was just fascinated by how things come to pass and come to fruition. And so, whether it was through me studying about history and government and policies, both in the United States or abroad, I specialized in American studies, but also in Eastern European studies, specifically uh, communism. So. So really relevant and poignant about how you move and can shape things through political action and what what is meaningful or transformative of political action, both positive and negatively. I really found my voice, which is a very general way of saying, when was the first time I became active in changing situations? I volunteered for a lemonade stand when I was eight years old and helped save a local library in New Orleans um, with a team of my neighbors. And so, you know, the power of people and of coalitions and of elevating issues to people, taking it to people and changing outcomes is, is as embedded in me as as anything is.
0: And you studied government at, uh, you went on to study rather government in uh, in Texas. And it seemed that you, that was where, how and where you were going to turn your focus. Yet, as I look at the work that you were not only called into at Invenergy, but that you, uh, you know, worked upon, it wasn't explicitly policy focused. So how did you reconcile those two?
1: When I started at Invenergy, I always joke and and still joke with, with all my original colleagues at Invenergy. We were the first office in Texas. I mean, Invenergy has been responsible for thousands of megawatts of of construction of wind energy and solar energy in Texas. We referred to ourselves as landmen, not because we were like true landmen in the sense of, you know, oil and gas, but really that we were out talking to people, pulling up titles, understanding who owned what, and kind of developing out a construct of how things operated and functioned in Texas. Um, As our responsibilities at Invenergy Texas expanded, we took over several states, many of which there were no development opportunities or hadn't previously been development activities for Invenergy and for, and I became the person that was kind of the greenfield person. They would drop me off in the middle of nowhere and be like, figure it out. And by figuring it out, that was everything from who were the utilities, who owns the lines, who owns the land, what were the permitting processes, what was the legislative pathways of, of policy universes. I mean, I, I started sitting in on regulatory calls. I started sitting in on legislative calls. I started presenting, you know, at various points in time before... Councils and commissions and and school boards, et cetera, for all of these different things. And you know what became very clear, and certainly it, it was around the time of the the recession in, in two thousand eight and and before that, was that policy was the mechanism that impacted and influenced outcomes. And and so whether it was a policy of how to get a meteorological tower up in you know Lafayette, Missouri, or whether it was you know, ARA funding or the the extension of the production tax credit, all of these things kind of drove how and who we were. And so everything that I had studied was being actualized in my profession. And I started to kind of piece it together. And increasingly, as I started to operate in more and more new states and new markets, became more and more involved in kind of the policy government discussions and how things actually functioned.
0: You know, it's remarkable. I was looking back at all the different work that you are involved in. And, you know, in the late aughts, early teens uh, of this century, not only were there not a lot of uh, females in project development, but there certainly weren't a lot of uh, females. I mean, generally speaking, customer-facing roles, negotiating land, negotiating off-taker agreements. Did you feel at the time that, that you had a particular gift for that? Was it something that you just got thrown into? And also I'm curious if you have any reflections on the relative difference from your counterparts and colleagues who were doing uh, that role. I presume, and I'll put myself on a limb here because we haven't talked about it, but I presume the majority of which were were male counterparts uh, around the efficacy of your work compared with theirs. Like, I'm curious what your observations are there.
1: In my early years, I... Was fortunate enough. There were a lot of people in Austin. There were a lot of people in Houston. There were a lot of females. And my boss at Invenergy was a female. My direct supervisor and one of my direct colleagues on my team of five people was a woman. So I was regularly surrounded by women and didn't really notice a difference. You know, my difference that I noticed was more my interactions and engagement with kind of the customers and that customer when I say customer, I mean, it could be a landowner, it could be a politician, it could be whatever else. And it was, how do I engage with them in such a way? What part am I playing to them and for them? And sometimes they wanted me to be a really strong know-it-all, answering all the questions, etc. And other times they wanted me to be softer and sweeter and more flirty and whatever. And so it was really about kind of gauging who and what my audience was, which you know, as as a female of a certain age, you know, we've all had to gauge our audiences for most of our lives. And so it was very much how do you work the room and how do you navigate the room. And as a precocious young woman, I have been known to work a room. And so it, it turned out actually to be to my benefit. And there were certainly instances where if one of my male counterparts couldn't like Bring something home. I was kind of was known as a deal closer because I could charm people into what I wanted.
0: Yeah, you remind me. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the interview that I did with Mona Dejani of Pillsbury. You remind me a lot of Mona because uh, you know she tells us that a very similar story. Ironically, also developing uh, large scale utility projects in Texas and and throughout the South, and how. She was tapped often to be the closer and uh, and had that that tenacity that allowed her to think around the problem
1: to that end, some of its conditioning just in life and and the families that we were born into or the situations that we were kind of grew up in and you know I'm one of four kids i'm a middle child like i'm all the classic things of like somebody that that works on navigating issues challenges, or problems and so at a very early age in my head, I equated that every no was a maybe and every maybe was a yes. And it's kind of how I approach any problem or any any situation. It's like, so you're saying there's a chance. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much a dumb and dumber kind of philosophy, but like you're saying there's a chance and and just being honestly not probably overconfident in my abilities. But I would say overconfident, but I generally deliver. So that's not overconfidence. It's just (laughs) confidence. But not being willing to take no for an answer, I think, is something that we all have problems with. Or most people, we've, we've been kind of taught that it's rude to continue down that path. And I don't agree with that. And the second thing is, is that, you know, you don't get what you don't ask for. And so, and I say this to all of my friends, and I've had numerous occasions where where you know, contemporary females and males have been like, you know, Carla. you're the one that taught me that you don't get what you don't ask for, like, because nobody's going to give it to you. And so, you know, it's the whole thing about just showing up is 80% of any situation. So it's you don't get what you don't ask for, you got to show up. And every no is actually a maybe you know if you if you can walk away from three th- with three things from this like those are the three things it's finding a path to the yes or to a maybe it's being in the room just seeing things and being open to to those experiences
0: i want to get into for sure, a bit of the rabble rouser in you that likes to shake things up. And lest my audience think that I'm particularly harping on uh, gender equity here in the very beginning of an interview, for no no, no good reason other than that you're a female, uh, I'd like to discuss how you and I you know you and I met several years ago. It was when I first became aware that there were these projects um, being developed around. Uh, the low to moderate income households um, sector that was creating opportunity for solar, namely, but economic advancement, economic equity, where clean energy is regarded. And I remember being really impressed with your poise and presence and the way that you carried yourself into these conversations around helping create policies that lifted people into a position of being able to afford, in quotes, but able to have and enjoy all the benefits of solar energy, despite not having the typical trappings of a solar energy household, you know, the high income or um, or even high utility bills. So this topic of inclusion and diversity has been something that uh, has become very central to the work that you've been doing. You developed low to moderate income access and took it to multiple states. You worked on the Clean Power Plan in, uh, I think, 10 different states. Help me understand how this came about in your work and how it led to some of the work that you were able to, to push forward in New York and Connecticut markets.
1: I mean, again, it's all about timing. <laughs> it's a, it's about timing, place, and, and opportunity. And and I got a call uh, again from a company in Louisiana, or this time from a company in Louisiana working on residential solar and energy efficiency. They were serving people of all income levels and and all credit score profiles, et cetera. And that wasn't necessarily intentional. It was um, actually just a. <laughs> A a indicator of where it was, which was New Orleans, which is a very depressed city economically and financially. And so, you know, what ultimately resulted was a portfolio of projects servicing low to moderate income households and marginalized households and communities of color. And I began to believe like this is something that can be replicated if you create policies that are intentional to actually service these people. And what I saw as I was going to other states and looking at market expansion opportunities, because again, I was in a business development role, was that this was exceptional. No other state was really focused on this. I mean, California being the exception, and that really solar um, and solar as a product was really only accessible to to, to your point, the wealthy and and the haves. So, how could we look at these various programs to edit them in such a way that we can reach everyone? And what was really the driving factor? was that when I got to New York and Connecticut, I realized that there were these things called the RPS surcharges, so the Renewable Portfolio Standard Surcharges, and the System Benefit Charges that every single person in each of these states were paying in and for, but really only the wealthy were benefiting from. And I was... I again it's this idea of justice and balance and equity that like I constantly am fighting for and if I don't feel it whether if it's in a female capacity or an equitable community capacity like my MO in life is to be like no equal footing like we need to have equal footing what you do with that equal footing is up to you but I just I want to give everybody a chance whatever that is and so I embarked on a crusade if you will I created a campaign. It was about access for low to moderate income households to solar and energy efficiency, equitable access to clean energy, you know, and fast forward a few years. I mean, that all started in 2013. By 2015, um, the Clean Energy Fund in, in New York was established and that was established through regulatory processes that I myself wrote, you know, hundreds of pages of filings on and for. Um, it resulted in the establishment of a partnership between my former company and the, uh, the Connecticut Green Bank um, for solar and energy efficiency financing, a financing product and incentive program and markets targeted at servicing all types of people from all walks of life and an equitable access to clean energy and clean energy policy. And so... I'm a crusader, I guess, is, is the simple way of putting it. I, I see problems, I see issues, and I try to solve them. And I try to solve them in a way that's thoughtful, but also equitable. And um, in this case, it was about equity for clean energy because the impacts of clean energy are not simply about affecting your utility bills, it's also about your way of life, your health, your wellness your inclusion in the economy in a different way, your participation in, in industry and business. And so, if, I mean, energy permeates every part of our life. Electricity permeates every part of our life. And if people are not included in those discussions and are not educated to understand what that means, they can't participate in it and for it, and they can't benefit from it which is ultimately the goal.
0: I'm hoping my notes are right here, but as a result of the strategic, regulatory and legislative advocacy that you were engaged in, uh, prim- primarily in New York and Connecticut, you were able to create a combined value of something like $75 million in incentives. Is, is that accurate?
1: I think it may be more than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, honestly, it's, it's been a minute most of those programs began to come to fruition um, in 2015 and have continued to today. I mean, I know that um, New York State and of just announced another $450 million worth of incentives, a lot of those being directed at solar, and a lot of it built on the work that I did several years ago. I mean, I, I literally, we we could trace back to the initial low to moderate income policy position where the first allocation was like 3% of let's say 20 million and that has only grown over time i mean you know millions and millions just in new york hundreds of millions potentially connecticut certainly a not insignificant market share um and that obviously doesn't include kind of the wind energy work that i did previously so
0: Well, I know that you've also been uh, not only a huge advocate for wind and solar, but also women's voice in positions of leadership all the way back to when you were in Austin working with what's now RISE, Women of Wind Energy. When we originally had our first interview was around the time that I also interviewed your friend and mine, your colleague at uh, SIA, Kendra Hubbard. You and she have been vocal advocates for increasing and pushing for equity in the board seats of the Solar Energy Industries Association. And I guess that, in a sense, is a bit of what I referred to back when I mentioned that you're a rabble rouser by mm-hmm. nature. Can you tell me, what's your experience been these last two years joining, choosing to run for and join the SIA board and, um, and taking increasing places of leadership on that board?
1: So, I mean, I would say that, you know, I mean, again, we started, I started doing women related things back in Texas, and I previously mentioned that I didn't really feel any kind of persecution or, or, Adverse impacts for being a woman. I actually kind of found it to be an asset in a lot of cases. I was the chairman of the Women of Wind Energy in Texas for five years. You know, before it was a thing, before, I mean, it was literally the first chapter in Texas, which has some of the largest penetration of renewable energy in the country. So I actually got my 10 year thank you note last spring, which was just, you know, crazy. Crazy to think it's been that long. But, you know, as I've gotten further in my career and as I've kind of moved up up the ladder, it has become more and more of an issue. Um, When you're kind of on the ground, in the weeds, whatever, it it may not be as much of an issue being a female. But I can tell you, the further you get up in the hierarchy of any company or the industry, the impact's palpable. and, And that's from you know, you know, whether you're a chief policy officer for a small company or a chief policy officer for a major company, the women that I work with and my colleagues are regularly in some cases vilified. They are criticized for being, you know, rabble rousers or or too strong or, you know, tone deaf or difficult or, you know, the B word or the C word. It's a discussion that I have personally, if not daily, at least several times a week. It is a real issue. As I have, you know, I ran for the sea board seat in the the fall of 2017. And honestly, it never occurred to me. Like, I, I've don't run for things. I typically am the person where people kind of know what my value is and they come and have a conversation with me and they're like, hey, come work with me or come do this thing. And and that's always kind of been the case. In this case, i was at a conference, and Ann Hoskins, uh, who is the chief policy officer for Sunrun, who's been on your show before, amazing woman, mentor in so many ways, came up to me and was like, hey, you should run for the Sea board. And I was like, what? And she's like, run for the Sea board. And I was like, okay, whatever. And and she followed up and she had me run. And it was actually the same time Kendra ran. But it had never occurred to me in a million years like that I would run for a board seat On the National Trade Association. Fortunately, I have a lot of amazing colleagues and connections in the industry. Jigger Shaw is a personal friend of mine, and Jan Brandt and and some other people really, you know, put their necks out and started endorsing me publicly on LinkedIn and all. It was really weird, but I was really nervous about running because I don't really deal with failure well, like anybody, and I don't you know, being vulnerable uh, is always, and, and putting yourself out there is always puts you in an awkward position. And so my way of dealing with it was I put together an application, I submitted it to SIA, I made three phone calls, and I got on a plane and I left the country for two weeks during the election process. And I was basically like, fate, do with it what you will, you know whatever and and fast forward i was elected and since i joined i i really joined on a on a platform about of, of diversity equity and inclusion because that had been so much of what i had been running for and working on for for the previous the probably 5 years up to that point point. and so um when i got to the board i was looking around and i was like there are a lot of white dudes here you know hello solar bro culture And I always knew that it was out there. I just, it was never so like starkly and clearly in front of my face. And, you know, by that point, Abby Hopper was the CEO of Sia. And there was just, it was clear that, there was a want, need, and desire for a change. And so Kendra and I and Abby and, and everyone pushed over the past, you know, two years to to make changes to to SIA and to how SIA Functions operates, hires as well as the process by which we nominate and or elect are the representatives from the general populace for the board. And now equity, gender, all of those things are being taken into account. We actually changed the bylaws to accommodate that.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> like, again, <laughs> you just got to show up. (laughs) You got to show up. You have to have a clear vision. You have to know what you want. And, and the number of, I mean, as frustrated as so many of my fellow board members were with me, you know, again, mostly white men, you know, CEOs of companies. I, I mean, I can count, I can't count on two hands, the number of them that pulled me aside. and was like, I am so grateful to you and for all of your work and being a constant reminder to all of us several of them were like, I'm so glad that my daughter has you in her life, even though she doesn't even know you're here because you are changing things and you are making it better and easier for her and to her. And I mean, that's feels good.
0: It's not easy to initiate change in an organization uh, that has been around as long as Sia has. And it was fortuitous in many ways that you ran and that uh, that Anne uh, brought you on, but also the synergy of everything happening, you know, the The change of uh, leadership at with Abby coming on as the first uh, female CEO and uh, with you and Kendra being voted in at the same time, Uh, again, to add to your point, under the um, strong guidance and advocacy of folks like Ann and Jan, you have a lot of influence in the industry. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash Suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy to install software is a win win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash Suncast. Did you miss out on the live sessions of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit? We had so much fun with some of the most inspiring and impactful leaders in the clean economy throughout the Americas learning about where the industry's going and giving you practical advice on how you too can participate and grow with us. Well, you're in luck because my team recorded the whole thing and you can check it out over at suncastsummit.com. It's posted there for a limited time for free. You can also see all of the replays inside of our private Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild, where all the videos are posted and lots of Solar Warriors just like you are connecting. Both are linked over at suncastsummit.com. See on the inside. So, you were not only voted in as a uh, membership elected board member.
1: I was just re elected.
0: But you were, ju- <laughs> yeah, you were just re elected. And yeah. you are the division chair for Distributed Generation, which, for those who are unfamiliar, is the largest division of SIA, which rep- means it represents the majority of the membership of SIA. That seems like a really big role, like big shoes to fill.
1: It is. I mean, it's big because it's the lion's share of our industry. I mean, the lion's share of the solar industry are the mom and pop companies. They are the distributed generation companies. They employ the most people of the entire industry. 65% of all solar workers work in the distributed generation sector and segment. It's very important as such, it's it's a large portion of the membership of SIA. Uh, I will make a, a selfless and selfish plug that, guys, SIA is doing phenomenal work right now. And it's not just SIA staff, which are great. And, and you know, Abby's leadership has been getting to work with her, because I do on almost a daily basis, has been just such an honor and pleasure. And I, I can't say enough, you know, as a female in the industry, she has been an absolute mentor to me as well as friend, but they are busting their tails for everyone every day. The resources that they have worked on and created both on a federal level and a state level, the coordinated campaigns that they're running from a communication standpoint, PR standpoint, et cetera, are so incredibly important. I mean, I feel a very real sense of responsibility. I mean, I have a full job for a private company. Most of the members on the SEA board are owners of their companies or CEOs of their companies and pay for their seat. I mean, I was elected by, uh, you know, the 250,000 solar workers in the industry. And I take that responsibility incredibly seriously. And so I feel like I work for everyone and I want to work for everyone for the betterment of the industry. And certainly in these times, you know, that sense of responsibility has only increased. And so, you know, we're doing things on a daily basis to make sure that that our businesses not only survive this, but come out on the other side even better.
0: Well, one of the ways that uh, not only from the seat of board member for SIA, but also as chief policy officer at Segora, you've made a very lasting impact. Something uh, we're going to carve out as a separate episode for the, for for us to dig deep into is this Virginia Clean Economy Act. You worked alongside Advanced Energy Economy and many others to bring together a coalition to make a landmark uh, sort of dent in coal country and what's happening within uh, the Virginia economy where Companies like Dominion have been on uh solar buying sprees, but not necessarily solar development under any sense of an RPS obligation. Um, do you want to talk briefly about like a higher, a, a high level overview of what the Clean Economy Act is and how uh, that stands to benefit not just Virginia but the nation?
1: Every life's work is is <laughs> is. It's like the next life's work. So, you know, we, we've talked about my my time doing land work and, and working on utility scale wind projects, which was amazing. And I mean, most recently, uh, Invenergy built Santa Rita, which is one of the largest wind energy projects ever built in the country. Project I named in 2000 and. Seven I named it you know to low income equity stuff and leader in states like New York and Connecticut and now um, for the past three years I've had the the exciting opportunity to create a market and that's what we just did uh, the Virginia Clean Economy Act overnight which we passed in a 60 day legislative session in Virginia um, is taking. Virginia from less than 1% renewable energy to 100% clean energy by 2050. And the gravity of that is uh, really humbling. You know, most of my career has been like, looking back, being like, I did that. That's kind of crazy. Um, and in this in this case, it's like, holy moly, <laughs> I did that. And granted, none of them were done alone. But like, this is literally the transformation of the entire energy sector in Virginia to a hundred percent clean energy. It's the creation of a new economy in the entire state. Like, I don't know how it gets bigger than that. I mean, I'm sure I'll figure it out and I'm sure I'll s- find some other insurmountable, you know, challenge ahead of me, but the legislation, I, I can't, Say enough about like the people that I worked with on it, and, you know whether it was the amazing lobbyists to the the trade, the various trade associations, Advanced Energy Economy, MDVCA, Merrick, SIA you know, Virginia Energy Efficiency Council, the Community Solar Association, I mean, all these people. I mean, there were there were so many people involved in it, on it, and for it. But it was about showing up every day. And it was about making the, the case that Virginia had this opportunity. And the opportunity wasn't just about renewable energy. It was about the creation of a new economy and putting transitioning the entire state into a clean energy economy. It wasn't a Renewable Energy Act. It wasn't, it wasn't these other things. And so we are we are now poised and positioned to deploy sixteen point one gigawatts of utility scale solar and wind, five point two gigawatts of offshore wind, one point One gigawatts of distributed generation, plus expansions in net metering of power purchase agreements, um, increases in net metering size from one megawatt to three megawatt, removal of standby charges, increases in net metering opportunities, capacities, um, and energy efficiency resource standard, carbon controls, greater oversight from the State Corporation Commission. I mean, if you want to talk about omnibus, comprehensive, landmark, transformational policies in the clean energy or renewable energy sector in space. I mean, this is it. Like it's never been done before like this.
0: It's sweeping legislation. And what what baffles me is that it's something that by and large just didn't get a ton of exposure in, you know, the likes of the the media outlets that I would expect we'd be talking about how this is, you know, when Washington, for example, passed their the state of Washington—they're 100% renewable. It was, uh, and then Colorado, and then you know now we're um, well over 100 uh, cities and states that have uh, committed. There was a lot of buzz all throughout 2019, and then early now, early 2020, we get this sweeping omnibus legislation in Virginia that is really a hallmark of uh, of what we want to see for the clean economy—not just for solar and wind, but for uh, efficiency and and the overarching goals of getting off of a, of getting to a zero carbon economy, you know, things that things that SIA and SIPA both are uh, highly uh, engaged with and in favor of. And I just didn't see the kind of um, response that I would expect from from media.
1: I would add one thing to that in an equitable fashion, because we had a lot of equity provisions in, in the legislation. And, and you're right, like there hasn't been much coverage. Um, you know, sadly, you know, the, the legislation actually passed in its current form on March 6th um, I, I, I finally got to take leave of Richmond after kind of basically an on, you know, a, a in perpetuity residency and, and was able to, to get back to D.C. And, you know, it was very clear that um, by the next week, the pandemic was, you know, here. And um, what really became imperative was how, you know, states, the federal government the economy, businesses were going to deal with with this kind of unprecedented um, situation, and and our, in a lot of ways, inability to respond to it in an um, efficient and quick way, I think, exacerbated the challenges and issues. But we didn't get to do a victory lap. Is the long
0: story short. <laughs> What is it, July? I think where it's going to be, and it's going to actually go into
1: July 1. It goes into effect.
0: Right. It goes into effect July 1. So I, I hereby call out all of the media outlets, not just in our industry, but we, we should push this out. I mean, Green, Green Business should be covering it, but so should USA Today and New York Times and Washington Post, right? So
1: I think there's a really, I mean, and, and you know, I've talked about this as well as many of my colleagues and as well as our patrons of the legislation um, have called this out. Senator McClellan and, and Delegate Rip Sullivan and and several of our our other um, champions of the legislation that the Virginia Clean Economy Act really represents an opportunity for a pathway out of the recession. I mean, the amount and level of investment that is is associated with this legislation really could serve as a roadmap for Virginia, but also for neighboring states and even the country about how we. How we do this? How do we get out of this? I mean, clean energy jobs are some of the best-paying jobs. I mean, before the the pandemic, I mean, we were hiring twenty times faster than the rest of the industry or the rest of the economy. Um, One in twenty jobs was a solar job. This is how we put America back to work. And you know, it's not just about panels. It's it's about policy. It's about IT. It's about security. It's about Yes, it's about construction, yes, it's about manufacturing, but it's all of these soft skill and hard skill jobs they're engineering jobs i mean it it really spans the gamut and the opportunities associated with it, whether you're talking about solar, wind energy, energy efficiency, it is just an opportunity like we have never and have not seen um really since since World War two and um need to need to seize it and and we need to take it and we need to Lifted up as as really again that roadmap of how how do we do this how do we come back from this and and I believe it's through infrastructure and I believe it's through infrastructure clean energy and and looking forward learning from our past but but using the the past to inform our future.
0: It's been uh, a really exciting time for you and for your colleagues working towards changing the paradigm of clean energy in your in the state where you operate. Uh, but throughout the the Northeast and now into the South. And I know that you've been mentored, as you mentioned, by folks like Anne who, uh, who have helped lift you into ever higher uh, positions of authority and influence. And I wonder, you know, you are well into a distinguished career now changing the status quo. W- what are some of the key lessons or takeaways from Folks who've in, had that level of influence, like Anne, on you, mentors and uh, and leaders that you've uh, that you've come alongside and who've helped you.
1: One of the best examples is probably really Abby Hopper. She is a a master at what she does. I've been a registered lobbyist in many many states and um, been in the lobbying game for a while. Um, and I think the you know one of the greatest lessons I've learned is you want to know what the what the outcome of the vote is before you ever go into the vote (laughs) and making sure you know where everybody is before you go in um, and having a a clear understanding of where everyone is so that you don't have any blind spots. And I mean, Abby is consummate professional at that and for that and embodies it on a daily basis. And I know that having watched her the past few years on that at the board level was was very informative and just, you know, mentorship is not about somebody taking you aside in every case and and showing you. It's it's actually living by example, and and she does that every day to me and for me. I would say that you know it certainly came to pass in the Virginia Clean Economy Act with, you know, knowing who the people were that were going to be most impactful on the voting day, and it's not by happenstance that that the people that ended up changing the entire universe and the the outcome of the Virginia Clean Economy Act. It was there was a contingency of some more junior your legislators in the House, they happen to be people that I'm all very close with, um, one of which I have the cl- probably one of the closest relationships with. Knowing where they were and where they sat and fell on all of this um, really kind of helped to determine and dictate what the outcome of the, the policy and the legislation was going to be. So, you know, I think it's about watching people in action and, and then being able to replicate that in practice and, and doing that in short order. In some cases, you know, that may be a few month turnaround and sometimes it's actually happens in real time. And so I think, you know, we, t- we talk about whipping votes and, and being a whip. I think I am a much better whip for knowing Abby Hopper and, and will be much more effectual in my job over and in the years to come because of
0: her. What a fantastic testimony of the of the work that she is about and one one great example of the influence that she's had in the industry. That's, fan, that's, a, that's a phenomenal homage to uh, Abby's work and she's by no means done. It made me think about uh, the a, a mentor relationship in my life as well. I know that you'll identify with this where as a developer, the project that you're working on has to go before investment committee and had a couple uh early in my development career where i would go to the investment committee and they i would i would not i would lose the uh, the vote so to speak wouldn't get the support and i had a mentor come alongside me and he goes did you look like you didn't expect that <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he you know he just still pulled me aside and he's like um he said i've been I've, I've been wanting to sit down and chat with you about this and uh he said I could have told you the outcome of this investment committee meeting. Uh, I know that you've got a decent project, but I also knew that you didn't have the votes you needed. And that if I told you that ahead of time, you wouldn't learn this lesson. So it was a hard lesson to learn. uh, What you just expressed in the the policy world is true as well in the development world. Before you go into any of these types of meetings, if you're doing your job well, you know that you have the votes and you know that you're going to get the decision in your favor or you don't waste anyone's time. And I find that's a that's a lesson that a lot of folks have to learn early in their career. And it's true in all all walks of work in life. That's a really great example. I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about that.
1: You know that was the the final articulation of that, but I mean, literally for you know the the five several months, four months leading up to the Virginia Clean Economy Act, you know we assembled a group of particularly DG um, distributed generation related companies, and it ended up being about sixteen of us, and and had an ad hoc committee that was a part of MDVCA. Um We raised two hundred thousand dollars. We had a communications campaign. We had all of these things, and and you know I was responsible for kind of putting it together. And so we regularly had votes, we regularly had conversations. And I mean, you know, the majority of my time for the entire process was spent on having conversations with everybody before our meetings to make sure I knew where everyone was. Yeah, building consensus so that when we got on the calls, it was, you know, everybody who I had healthy relationships with, which was 90% of the people um, were all on the same page. We had talked through any issues that we might have and were able to move and proceed forward in a in a, a much more efficient capacity. And, and that particularly is important in distributed generation. We have notoriously been fragmented, certainly on the state level, um, between companies and groups and segments. And so... Having the distributed generation segment of the industry aligned on the Virginia Clean Economy Act, I mean, the wins that we were able to achieve, the rest of of the entire universe were trying to cut us out at every point in time, including the utility company. And so the fact that we were able to get the wins that we, we got, I mean, it was... It was by brute force. It was not by by luck. Nothing was given, and was really a testament to everybody's commitment to each other to make sure that we could could pull it across the finish line.
0: I typically will ask what's on your nights and what are you reading lately. But I'm also curious, given that you've studied government, you're a polyglot, you've studied lots of different elements of life. You grew up in New Orleans and uh, had lots of different experiences. Is there a book or two that have particularly shaped your, your thought process, your leadership style?
1: I am a student of human nature, probably more than I am a student of anything else. Behaviors, interaction, interfaces. I mean, certainly everything that I've ever read kind of informs that. Um, I think my weird obsession slash fascination with communism uh, is, is certainly kind of informs things, but also kind of the justice process, you know, taking constitutional law and being super interested in that all, all were very important. But I think that, I mean, One of my favorite books ever is this book called Under a Cruel Star. And it's about a woman who survives the death march from Auschwitz and um, ends up in Budapest under, you know, a communist regime and how it basically was the same thing as fascism, just painted differently. And just the, the struggles, strife, but also human element to all of this. And, you know, I think the The thing that makes me effective at what I do is that I'm very empathetic and really want to see things from other people's perspectives and want to understand what their motivations are so that you know, we can come together in a constructive way rather than a divisive or antagonistic way. And so when you see, I mean, this book is, I mean, it was a personal story and it's, I mean, it's heart-wrenching and it's such a weird book to like cite on something like this, but it's just, you know, the emotional, physical, mental toll, struggle, strife, et cetera, and that you can come out on the other side and, and, and still be healthy and happy and functional, that, you know, the the old saying that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. I think, you know, I'm very much a person that is um, informed by all of my experiences, both personal, familial, professional, etc. And I think that, you know, in order to be an effective leader, in order to be a successful person, it's about having inner peace, happiness, and having connection to people. I mean, I, a lot of other people spend a lot of time, just all of their time, constantly in motion. My greatest time is breaking bread with people and sharing a meal and having a conversation so that I can better understand them, to understand kind of the human condition so that I can work to make it better. On the flip side, there's another book called The Brothers, and it's about John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. And it's uh, kind of the historical account of these two brothers who probably have shaped and formed policy in the United States more than any two human beings ever. Um, and not in a good way. One was the head of the CIA. The other one was secretary of state for, for several presidencies. Um, and it's how they basically navigated and manipulated the universe for essentially their own self-glorification and their own MO. And I think you know, both of those are kind of articulations of the corruption of power and, and what that looks like. And, you know, it's our responsibility to keep people honest. And if we are not holding people accountable, then we will end up exactly in the place that we currently are.
0: Brothers, that's by Stephen Kenzer, yeah? Yep. We'll certainly link to both of those. What a fantastic way to bring the bring everything full circle with a book on the way things can be manipulated behind the scenes for good and for bad. The, the brothers, John Foster, Dulles, Alan Dulles, and Their Secret World War by Stephen Kinzer. We have been blessed with a wonderful interaction here. Carla is the Chief Policy and Development Officer of Sigilera Solar as well. She is the Distributed Generation Chair for Solar Energy Industries Association Board of Directors. Carla, thank you so much for taking time to be with us here on Suncast today and I look forward to our next engagement.
1: Thanks so much, Nico. It, it was great being on.
0: All right, Solar Warrior. That is a wrap. And I just love that conversation with Carla. I can't get enough of her enthusiasm and energy. And I know that you enjoyed it as well. But believe me, the conversation and learning doesn't have to stop here with the end of this episode. If you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with social media links for Carla and myself book recommendations like the ones that Carla gave, and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. While you're there, if you're looking for a community of like-minded leaders and clean energy advocates, then I'd strongly encourage you to check out our free Facebook page, The Clean Energy Guild. You can find a link, of course, from the website, but it's also pretty easy to just search Facebook and find The Clean Energy Guild. So, hey, let's help each other tune up our skills as we're all in this journey of mastery together hope that you'll tune in next week. As I mentioned, Carla will be walking us through the landmark Virginia Clean Economy Act legislation that she campaigned so diligently for. I also want you to check out next Thursday's interview with Intersect Power's CEO, Sheldon Kimber. He's going to walk us through how he built a gigawatt plus solar portfolio in under two years. We also go into his time at Recurrent and how he thinks about solar development. Remember, you are what you listen to Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.